Good evening. Welcome to uh, part two of uh, my discussion of the 39 articles. Um, as you can see, I'm in my closet. Um, you know, see the shoe rack right there and the clothes hanging up. Uh, it's also where I have my little place where I pray, um, literally in my closet. So you can see my icons and candles back there. Um, in any case, um, so we left off with a discussion last time of the of Article 6 of the 39 Articles. Go back and watch that video. Um, I've linked it below. And in it, uh, we kind of set the tone for why am I having a discussion of these things? Um, what are the 39 Articles? What are they for? <clears throat> um, and in order to really get into some of that, we looked at uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, at the section entitled The Documentary Foundations, uh, we looked at the fundamental declarations of the province, um, that is, the province of the Anglican Church in North America. And number seven says, we receive the 39 Articles of Religion of 1571, taken in their literal and grammatical sense as expressing the Anglican response to certain doctrinal issues controverted at the time, at that time, and as expressing fundamental principles of authentic Anglican uh, belief. Okay, and so because the Anglican Church in North America receives the 39 Articles in some sense, um, it's probably worthwhile to uh, talk about it. Um, I'll go into the whole discussion. You can simply watch the video below. Um, but I'll add that um, Anglicans shouldn't be nervous about the 39 Articles. There's no it's not binding on anyone, at least in Anglican Church in North America, as far as I can tell, um, not even on clergy. So... Uh, they are an authority in the sense that they might give us a starting point for doing um, theology or for at least reflecting on the Anglican uh, principles of doing theology, but they are not in themselves. Um, they're not like a constitution or a statement of faith or something like that um, that is adhered to, nothing like that. Okay, well, we got through um, the first uh, six articles, so we're going to go right past those and head down to Article 7. All right, Article 7 of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. Although the law given from God by Moses, as touching ceremonies and rites, do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth. Yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from obedience of the commandments which are called moral. Okay, so here you have, um, in very flowery language, I might add, um, the traditional division of the Mosaic law into uh, ceremonial, civil, and moral law. While I do think there is some really good Old Testament scholarship that complicates those neat distinctions, they nevertheless seem to hold. So um, clearly the civil law was not followed, um, even in Jesus' own day, uh, as the Roman civil law was what was followed. Um, the ceremonial law was followed when it came to um, sacrifices in the temple and purification and such like, but Christ generally flouted um, the ceremonial law, at least some of the applications the Pharisees had of the ceremonial law and St. Paul um, clearly sets aside the ceremonial law in places, especially the book of Galatians, 
Jesus himself declares that all foods are clean. Mark 7 references this, as does uh, Peter's vision in the book of Acts. So um, I think it is safe to say that more or less uh, the civil and ceremonial laws are uh, abrogated for Christians in the sense that they were fulfilled by Christ. And so as participants in Christ who obey the law perfectly in all ways, um, we, uh, we have that righteousness. It is not our obligation to, um, to follow them, nor should, you know, the government adopt the civil law of the Old Testament or something like that. Um, but the moral law is binding in the sense that, um, that really, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect explanation. So, or example, we go to Matthew 5, we see Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, and when she clarifies, expands um, the moral law as set out in the Ten Commandments, as set out in other places in the Old, in the Old Testament. So you have to obey the moral law. Um, Article 8 of the three creeds. The three creeds, Nicene Creed, Athanasius Creed, and that which is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, ought thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. You can go and Google it. Go read the creeds. Um, They're basic summaries of essentially basic Christian orthodoxy that can be agreed upon. Um, I would hope by every... Uh, every Christian. If you can't affirm the creeds, then you're probably not a Christian, would be my guess. So some groups that think they're Christians that can't uh, affirm the creeds include the Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I think one potential, uh, I'm not sure how the, uh, how like oneness Pentecostals would get around the Trinitarian language, for example. Um, But in general, they're the most basic um, boundary lines. Article 9 of Original or Birth Sin. Original sin standeth not in the following end of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into this world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated. Or by the lust of the flesh, called in the Greek, and I don't know Greek, so I'm not going to try to say it, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some the affection, some the desire of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. Oh boy. Okay. Um, well, what do we say about this? Um, this is an example of a very Western, uh, very Augustinian um, account of our sin nature. Um, in that it speaks of sin um, as fault and as, uh, corruption. And it asserts that sin is in every person born, um, not simply because we, um, after we are born, imitate our father Adam in sin, but that our very nature is already sinful when we are born. And if that means that we are born with a tendency to sin, um, then sure. We do. We we're all born with a tendency to sin. But the article seems to also say that um, uh, every person born 
Uh, let's see. He says so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into this world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. Now, please know what this preposition it is doing, and this is where the grammatical and literal sense comes in. Um, it deserveth God's wrath, not he deserveth God's wrath. This is not talking about human beings deserving God's wrath. Rather, it is talking about the sin nature that is already present in everyone born, even in the tiniest little bitty baby. Um, yes, sin nature deserves God's wrath. Why? Because God hates that which harms, um, which harms his creation, which harms his people. Okay. And we are all infected by sin, even if we are regenerated, even after our baptisms, um, and this is why St. Paul can say in Romans 7, I do not understand why I do what I do for what I want to do. I do not do and what I hate I do. Um, nevertheless, um, um, it, you know, we are still aiming at things of the spirit after our regeneration. Um, so he's, the article seems to be stressing a, everyone sins and they sin not because everyone makes the same libertarian free choice that Adam made to sin, but that we all come into this world with an inherent tendency to sin. And two, the article seems to emphasize that even after we become Christians, sin remains in us. And we must that I say, amen. Um, this framing of sin as original sin in the sense of some sort of like inheritance from Adam um, may not be the best way of framing this, but um, I think the gist of the article is pretty clear. Article 10 of free will, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith in calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us that we uh, may have good will and working with us when we have that good will. Okay. Um, Look at that word preventing. This would be an example of when we, we should update our language. Um, this is from this is not prevent as in to stop, but prevent as in prevenient. Um, that is grace that goes before us. So, um, sure, humans cannot choose, willingly choose uh, God apart from God's call, right? Uh, we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without us doing so. Um, on the basis of the grace God has given us, which is why we desire this prevenient grace, right? This grace that comes from God and is given to everybody so that anyone could follow the call of God. Sure. Um, people that are not Christian and um, don't have faith, though they may do good works, and those works may be laudatory and excellent and certainly naturally virtuous, um, are not pleasing to God because they don't come from Article 11 of the justification of man, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more, more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. Okay, justification in the, this case um, is the declaration of our legal standing before God. That is, we are declared righteous. And the basis for that righteous declaration is uh, faith we have in Christ. Um, I think the way the New Perspective on Paul people would frame this is that faith is the badge of covenant membership. 
and it's you know that's like your you got to show your ID to get in to you know somewhere you're going. You got to show your ticket. And the ticket is faith. Um, that justification that is not describing the justification that uh, results in our transformation. That what is sometimes called sanctification. Uh, rather, this is simply the justification in terms of a forensic declaration, and it's on the basis of faith in Christ. And then you can't do anything to deserve it. You can't make yourself worthy. You can't, by your own merits, achieve anything that makes God owe you anything. It's only on the basis of what Christ has done. Article 12 of Good Works, albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. Okay, so we uh, we do good works as Christians. These good works do not put away our sins. They don't they don't justify us. That justification is Christ. Um, but they are pleasing and acceptable. They do merit in that sense because um, they stem from Christ. They do merit um, for us rewards in heaven. Um, and uh, they are a necessary following after faith. There is no, there, as the book of Hebrews says, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, As Christ says in Matthew 5, um, there is a way that leads to life, um, and it is narrow, and there's a way that leads to death, and it is broad, and few are those who find the way to life, and many are those who find the way that leads to death. And he also says that, you know, at the final judgment, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, did we, you know, did we not uh, love you and serve you? And he'll say, who are you again? Um, and in Matthew 25, the judgment is based on our works, not as a judgment of, do these works merit you or deserve you a favor with God, but a judgment in terms of um, uh, is there good? Is there good reason to believe that you had faith? And it will be by based on our works. Uh, Article thirteen of works done before justification, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of His Spirit are not pleasant to God, for as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace, or as the school authors say, which I think is a slight on school authors, if you ask me. Uh, deserve grace of congruity, yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to do to be done, we doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. Okay, and just saying everything we have ever done is affected by sin in some way. And even if you do lots of really good things, that, you know, that doesn't get you any closer to God. You still do them, um, but good works done without faith are worthless. In terms of justification, that is. Article 14 of works of supererogation, voluntary works besides, over and above God's commandments, which they call, they, I believe is the Catholics, works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety, for by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but that they do more for his sake than of bounden duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, when ye have done all that are commanded to you, say we are unprofitable servants. Okay, I mean, duh. Like, you, you... <laughs> You cannot do more than is required of you. It's just not going to happen. Okay, so I think that's obvious. Article 15 of Christ alone without sin. Christ is the truth of our nature. Christ in the truth of our nature was made like unto us in all things, sin only except from which he was clearly void, both in his flesh and in his spirit. 
He came to be the Lamb without spot, who by sacrifice of himself once made should take away the sins of the world and sin, as St. John saith, was not in him. But all we the rest, although baptized and born again in Christ, yet offended many things. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Yes. Just in case the point hasn't been made yet, only Christ is without sin. We all have sin. He is like us in all things, except that he is without sin. Uh, Article 16 of Sin After Baptism. Not every deadly sin willingly committed after baptism is sin against the Holy Ghost and unpardonable. That's good. Good to know. Wherefore, the grant of repentance is not to be denied to such as fall into sin after baptism. After we have received the Holy Ghost, we may depart from grace given and fall into sin, and by the grace of God, we may arise again and amend our lives. And therefore, they are to be condemned, which say they can no more sin as long as they live here, or deny the place of forgiveness to such as truly repent. Um, this isn't really controversial anymore. Uh, in the very early church, there was some debate about whether once you were baptized, whether you could sin again. Um, Tertullian has some discussion of this. Um, the canonically, the church was really interested in, um, how many times can we forgive people, um, before we just say, I don't know, it's up to God. Um, but I think we understand that we can repent multiple times for our sins. The danger is in making this, um, uh, searing our consciences so that we take for granted God's grace. As St. Paul asks in Romans chapter 6, shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Um, and if your attitude is, sure, you know, more the more grace, the better. Uh, the more sin, the better, because there's more grace than you have not understood uh, the gospel. Okay, here's a fun one. Article 17 of Predestination and Election. This is the longest of the 39 articles, which befits it. Predestined to life, predestination to life, is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God be called according to God's purpose, um, according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season, they through grace obey their calling. They be justified freely, they be made sons of God by adoption, they be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works, and at length by God's mercy they attain to everlasting felicity. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members and drawing upon their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, so as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. So... For curious and carnal persons lacking the spirit of Christ to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchedness, wretch, wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. Furthermore, we must receive uh, God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture and in our doings that will of God is to be followed which we have expressly declared unto us in the word of God. Okay, so um, predestination, which is a term used in Scripture, those whom he foreknew he also predestined, 
uh, as St. Paul says in Ephesians. Um, okay. Uh, predestination is a term used in scripture and it is that he hath constantly decreed by his counsel to deliver from cursing damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind. Okay, so this uh, could be read as affirming uh, what is sometimes called single-handed predestination or the Lutheran version of predestination as opposed to the more Calvinist double-handed predestination where God saves some and condemns others. Um, we don't know the... I mean, in this scenario, we, it's secrets. So we don't know the number of the elect or the basis for that election. This doesn't have to be read that way. Um, another, I think, equally good reading of it, I think probably more biblical, um, is uh, to deliver from cursing damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind. Those whom he hath chosen in Christ is an idiom. It's sort of a way of saying um, he has elected Christ, and all who are in Christ are therefore elected as well. The question is not, did he elect those in Christ? The question is, how does one get into Christ? Which we know from the previous articles is by, by faith. Um, and then the rest of the article, I mean, most of the rest of it goes on to describe what it looks like to be elect of God, okay, to be adopted as sons and daughters. Um, and how the doctrine of election should be a comfort to those of us who are in Christ, um, rather than as a, an opportunity to build up our own arrogance and think that we have done something to deserve this election. No, God has has called you, and you are that's supposed to be humbling to you. Um, you certainly don't deserve it. Nor should it thrust us into desperation or wretchlessness in our search to try to prove or discern for, for are we really elect? Um, you see, sometimes see the Puritans get really hot and bothered by this kind of question. Okay, uh, Article 18 of Obtaining Eternal Salvation Only by the Name of Christ. They also are to be had uh, accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth, so that he be diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. For Holy Scripture doth set us un unto us the only name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. And um, this explicitly is condemning this idea that uh, so long as you follow your conscience, you're fine. Um, well, it's not exactly condemning that. It's, it's condemning saying that all roads lead equally to heaven. Um, clearly, that's not true. There's no name on, on earth by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ, is what the scripture says. Um, but this does not rule out that we are saved, uh, that there could be people who are saved uh, via Christ, but are not consciously aware of him. So I think the best example of this is, uh, that might be well known to people is in the, uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, <clears throat> you have, <clears throat> pardon me, you have a character who is a lifelong worshiper of the god Tash. And even when, um, the frauds came along and declared that Aslan and Tash were really the same god named Tashlan, this worshiper of Tash was devoted to his original god and would not go along with the deception. Now, it was a later revealed that Tash is a demon um, who is behind the deception posing as Tashlan. Um, but this character, nevertheless, makes it into um, heaven in the end. And when he asks Aslan, well, I'm a worshiper of Tash. How come you're letting me in? Aslan says, well, all the worship you gave to Tash, you really gave to me. As in, you were aiming yourself at that which is highest, and you just didn't know the name. That's different than saying, well, it doesn't really matter if we evangelize or if people come to Faith. This article is not about people who have never heard the gospel. God will do what God will do. 
this article is about us um and it's to get you know help motivate us motivate us to get off our keisters and uh, tell other people about about christ okay article 19 hey about halfway done of the church the visible church of christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of god is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance, and all those things that of necessity are requisite to do the same. As the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, so also the church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. All right, so the church is wherever the word of God is preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. Um, the church is not infallible. Um, the article here specifically names the uh, four of the five great... Um, Patriarchates of the ancient uh, of the ancient church. It leaves out Constantinople. I'm not entirely sure why, um, but basically the great churches of antiquity all made mistakes, not only in their ceremonies uh, or in their manner of living, but also in what they believed. And that's fine. We should all expect to make mistakes. No church is perfect. So long, but you remain a church so long as you preach the word of God and administer the sacraments. Article 20 of the Authority of the Church. The Church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written, neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the Church be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, uh, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. All right, so the church has authority uh, to say this is what we believe, this is what we will teach, uh, but it is not permitted to require people to believe um, as a on penalty of their salvation uh, anything that is not, again, proven uh, from Holy Scripture or, or revealed therein. But that doesn't stop the church from having the authority to establish doctrine, ceremonies, rites, um, processes, rules, whatever. Um, it just cannot require um, obedience unless that obedience can be demonstrated from the Holy Scriptures. Article 21 of the Authority of General Councils. General Councils may not be gathered together without the commandment and will of princes. And when they be gathered together, for as much as they be an assembly of men, whereof all be not governed with the Spirit and Word of God, they may err, and sometimes have erred, even in things pertaining unto God. Wherefore, things ordained by them as necessary to salvation have neither strength nor authority, unless it may be declared that they be taken out of Holy Scripture. Um, general counsel, another term for that is uh, ecumenical counsel. Um, there are seven big ones, and it'll be discussed a little bit later uh, about the seven big ones. Um, but basically, this suggests that the only way in which a general council can be gathered is by the declaration of a secular ruler. Um, this is really showing its age, right? This is the 16th century. Um, it is true that all seven of the ecumenical councils were summoned by the emperor, the Roman emperor, um, at that point based in Constantinople. And um, no, the idea is that no bishop, the, the, kind of the idea was that the emperor was the... Uh, the chief layman of the church and that the people themselves as the representative of the people were able to call the council together. Um, clearly this is, this is one of those things that it may be in general, maybe in general, a good idea for the church to 
practice in certain situations. But I think today, if we were going to have a council, we would not want secular government involved at all. Right? The bishops can call the council themselves. Um, also, the general councils can make mistakes, and they have made mistakes, and that's fine. Because, the again, the scriptures are the final authority in matters of faith and practice. Of the doctrine of purgatory, Article 22, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshiping, and adoration, as well as images and of relics, and also invocation of saints, is a fond thing, vainly invented, and grounded upon no warranty of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. Okay, this can be read in one of two ways. Um, the more evangelical way to read it is to say, yeah, like this, all of the doctrines of purgatory, pardons, worshiping, etc., all of those things are, are Romish or Catholic things, and therefore we, we reject them. The other is to say, yes, well, there are Romish doctrine of purgatory, pardons, worshiping, and adoration, and images and relics, and invocation of the saints, and the Romish version of those things ought to be condemned. Um, and what do we mean by Romish? What the Roman Catholic Church was doing in the uh, 16th century. Um, really, if you want clarity on that, go to look at the Council of Trent. That'll be... He'll summarize that really well. Actually, the Council of Trent kind of addresses a lot of the abuses that the um, Roman Catholic, sorry, that the Protestant Church has pointed out. Um, and this is where John Henry Newman's famous Track 90 is really interesting um, because he seeks to harmonize, basically harmonize the 39 articles of the Council of Trent. Um, okay, so what are the Romish doctrines of purgatory pardons, worshiping and adoration, images, relics, and invocation of the saints? Basically, uh, if purgatory, if by purgatory we mean a place where you expiate your temporal um, punishment uh, for your sin, then no, purgatory is out. That is a bad idea. That's the Romish idea. But if by purgatory we mean um, a time or place or space time or dimension of some sort where you are purged of your sins um, and made truly holy, your, your sanctification is completed, then yes, I think everyone, all Christians should affirm that kind of purgatory, purgation. That is where we are cleansed of our um, sin and made fit for heaven. Um, pardons. Uh, I think this is probably a reference to uh, indulgences. Um, again, we're not. We don't view purgatory as giving time off, or sorry, we don't view purgatory as fulfill, as expiating your temporal punishment. So, uh, granting you a pardon of you know time served or something, um, it's not something the Protestants are going to do. Uh, the Romish doctrine of worshiping. So this is where. Newman's argument seems to make a little bit of sense because we're not going to condemn worshiping. We're going to condemn the Romish doctrine of worshiping. Um, worshiping and adoration of it seems to be saying grammatically of images as well as relics and also invocation of the saints. So should we worship and adore images and um, relics? Well, we shouldn't in the Romish sense. And again, the reformers understood the Romish sense to be giving to images and relics the kind of worship that is due only to God. Um, by the way, worship is an older English word. The, it's derived from worth-ship, where things are worthy. It is not reserved only for God in older English, uh, like it is in contemporary English. So it, it, you can still see this in England when judges are not called your honor, but they're called your worship. It's basically saying your honor. So should we give honor and adoration to images and relics? By images, we mean icons, probably, or statues. Relics, we mean um, something associated with the saints, whether a bone or some article. Well, um, I mean, we, we give honor and 
uh, respect to family heirlooms that are associated with people we love that have passed on. If you got grandma's, um, you know, grandma's, um, I don't know, favorite pillow or something, you're probably not going to just, you know, use it as a regular old pillow. You, you might, but probably you're going to preserve it in some some sort of way, right? I mean, I think that's what's going on here. So should we be respectful and give honor to those that have passed on before us in the faith, the saints of God? Yes, I think that's clear. But should we get superstitious about them, carry around a little piece of bone of St. Thomas Aquinas or whatever, and as a good luck charm to fend off demons or something? I, no, certainly not. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, same thing with icons. Um, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the discussion of the, of the councils. But um, we can say that um, if by image we mean a window into heaven that helps us focus our worship on God by imitating the saint, then yes. If by image we mean an idol, then clearly no. And again, the reformers are worried that the image is being used in the um, 16th century um, late medieval Catholic church was essentially uh, worship. Invocation of the saints, um, prayers to the saints. So the Romish version of prayers to the saints um, is where you specifically ask the saints for stuff. Uh, that seems to be what the reformers are worried about. You don't go to the saints for stuff. You go to God for stuff. Um, what you can ask the saints to do is pray for you. Um, and I think that that was, that's acceptable in um, under this article. Okay, that was a fun one. Um, all right, so at this point, I think I'm going to push pause and we can resume a discussion of the 39 articles at a later time with article 23 of Ministering in the Congregation. Thanks. Have a blessed day.